Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you Hey, good morning. Glad you're here watching this online or podcasts or videos later. We're wrapping up our series on post-Christian Jesus today. Uh, next week, we'll be resuming our march through the book of the uh, Gospel of John. But in this series, what we're basically doing is trying to figure out this. Does Jesus' way of life and suggestions about how to live still make sense in our modern world? Uh, I'm just a little nervous about what we're going to talk about this morning. Because what we're going to learn from Jesus is especially applicable, I think, to those of us in living in 2022. We're going to talk about a command and a promise that Jesus gave to us that most of us, myself including, just really aren't following or experiencing in our day-to-day lives. And if you're wondering why I showed you the one minute and 43 second clip of an exhausted cat sleeping on a restaurant floor, you will, you will figure it out pretty, pretty quickly. Uh, You've heard it um, simply stated in our one-verse scripture uh, from Matthew 11. We see this in verse 28, Matthew 11. It says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So, okay, for a cat to be laying in the middle of a restaurant, when people and waitstaff are walking all around him or or her, he or she must be very weary, (laughs) weary and burdened. Plum tuckered out, as we might say in southern Indiana. Weary and burdened are not words that we typically use to describe ourselves, but weary just means tired. And burdened is this idea that you've got so much to do and so little time to do it. So maybe instead of saying burdened, we could say busy. And just to state it another way, Jesus' promise might read this way. Come to me, all you who are busy and tired and I will give you rest. Now, of those three words, busy, tired, and rest, which one best describes your life? Because if you're anything like me, it's probably the words busy and tired, just this kind of low-key exhaustion, right? Uh, Sure, it's, it's intense exhaustion on some days because of work or problems in life or whatever. Like, you ever have to visit the DMV? That exhausts you, even if you are at the peak of your physical, mental, and emotional prowess. But in general, there's always just this kind of low-key exhaustion running in the background. Always a little bit sleepy. Always a little bit drained. Always a little bit preoccupied. Always a little bit obsessed about the amount of stuff that you've got to get done. We're always feeling a little bit busy and tired. And you kind of think, well, maybe vacations will fix it all. Did you mark some time for rest, right? You can, you can turn on restful, though, right? Typically, working at CIA when I did, to be able to go on vacation, I had to kill myself to get a bunch of work done before I could even go. And if that's not bad enough, even vacations can turn stressful. Like on this vacation this past summer, I get word from our neighbors that some bad storms rolled through our area and that the electricity was out in our neighborhood. Then we heard that there's some power back on, but it's not clear that power is on at our house. In our neighborhood, we all tend to look out for each other, so neighbors are texting us on what's going on. 
So there's still some concern about whether the power is on or off. Uh, did our house get hit by lightning? Maybe there's a hole in the roof. Uh, and the mind, right, begins to spin. And then we get another text that shows us pictures of what Dominion Energy did to destroy a big chunk of our front yard by trying to fix some broken part in the power line that ran beneath our property. So it turns out that vacations can be kind of scary things for me. I normally put a vacation stop on mail, right, and a paper. But I've been trained to fear that two-week dump of mail when I get back home. Why? Because a few years ago, we came back after what I thought was, still do, a wonderful two weeks away. When the mail from those two weeks was delivered, there was an invoice from the IRS saying that we owed $20,000 because we had not claimed capital gains on the sale of some investments. All the restful benefit from the vacation immediately vanished into thin air. But now, I will say this, and you probably won't believe it, but the IRS was incredibly helpful in solving this mystery, right? Um, at the time, we had trusted a family member to oversee our investments, meager as they were. And when we got to the bottom of it, everything wrong was the fault of the failure of this family member and his company to ensure that this firm reported correctly what was nothing more than the simple renaming of some stocks. I don't know how they name stocks. There's, I guess there's common, and then there's like uncommon. I don't know what it is. But anyway, some got changed from one to the other. And the investment firm messed, messed it all up and basically told the IRS that we had made all this money because of the chain name change. The IRS gal asked me at the end of this whole process, now you are firing this person and this firm, right? I go, yeah, I'm already done. Good. Good, she says, right? Anyway, the point is that rest can be a hard thing to come by and to retain given the world we live in. So maybe vacations aren't the sole answer. I think a lot of people are just making it through the day. A lot of us are just kind of holding on for the next vacation. And if that's you, please, please learn from me, will you? It ain't no guarantee. But we tell ourselves that the vacation will refuel us for a few months of real life, of parenting, of work, of chores, of DMV, of car repairs. So we clock out on the last day of work and stumble into our vacation like those Ironman athletes at the finish line. Yeah, our legs don't work and we have soiled ourselves, but hey, we made it to vacation. And then prop, what typically happens? You get the time off, you come back to the office, and all the work that you did not do while you were away is sitting there waiting for you. It doesn't take a week back before you are again busy and tired. And you circle the date on the calendar, and you can plan to get away again. And you tell yourself, surely you can hold on until then. We're all just kind of stumbling across these little finish lines that we make for ourselves. Just got to get to 5 o'clock. Just got to get to the weekend. Just got to get to the vacation. Just got to get to graduation. Just got to make it to retirement. And we're just kind of white-knuckling it through our lives. And Jesus promises us rest. But typically, we just don't feel very rested. Busy at work and home creates all kinds of stuff. Well, why do we feel constantly busy and tired? 
thousands of reasons, I think. Thousands of reasons exist, so I'm not going to try to cover them all. Uh, probably the biggest culprit is you've got you to eat to live, right? You need money to eat, and so you've got to work to make money. So for a lot of us, our jobs are making us feel busy and tired. You've got inner office politics. You've got the overtime hours. You've got this nagging feeling that you should probably be climbing the corporate ladder to get the next pay raise. Work can be, work can be exhausting. For those of us with families, right? You know that not only are you working at work, but you're working at home. Because the house needs clean. Yard work needs done. Kids need to go to practice. And at least one of the kids has a penchant for some disaster that you're going to have to deal with. Even if your kids have left home, I found out you're still parents. And there's still stuff you need to do with them, talk through with them. So homework and work can be exhausting. But maybe there's something else at play, too. Life in general at the very straightforward base level, always tends towards busy and tiring. But for the last 15, 20 years, I think there's been a brand new cherry on the top of that day-to-day exhaustion. In my opinion, and so do some social scientists and even doctors, think that it might be the straw that's breaking the camel's back when it comes to us feeling busy and tired. So I think the thing that's maybe pushing our exhaustion over the edge is our, wait for it, smartphones. Smartphones. Now, right now, some of you, especially if you're a teenager, probably hate me. (laughs) You probably feel like I've been giving your phones a beating for the last month or so, so just hear me out. I think our phones are making us feel more busy and more tired than we need to feel. And that's mainly because our phones are constantly distracting us. We have an infinite world of the internet, complete with its promises of endless information and entertainment and connection. We have the infinite world of possibilities in our pockets 24-7. The only break you might get is if you work in a classified environment where you have to leave your cell phones either in your car or at home. And the problem is, most of us don't live in that world. As a result, we are constantly distracted by the siren's call of our phones. It's constantly going, hey, down here, look at this, check check this out. Come escape for a second. Just escape. Escape work for a few minutes by checking your social media. <clears throat> then when you get home, escape home for a few minutes by getting a little bit of work done. Come escape into the endless world of the Internet. In fact, some historians, some neurosurgeons, some educators and researchers have dubbed this period that we live in as the age of distraction. You can actually Google this yourself. or Read all of the articles <clears throat> and the growing body of research that I've read on how the constant interruptions of our devices affects our ability to focus, to concentrate, to think deeply. Teachers are now finding this. I mentioned this at a small group the other night. That there are students that cannot grasp the meaning of texts, texts that previous generations of students grasped easily. And it's leading some deans of education to conclude, we need to start systematically teaching students how to focus and concentrate. 
which earlier generations of students just knew how to do innately. I've seen in my own life that this constant distraction interrupts my ability to find the kind of rest Jesus promised me. One of the reasons for that is with the birth of the cell phone, there came the birth of a, no, of a new social expectation for everybody, right? For you and me. And the social expectation that's there is that you and I are always to be available. We should be available at work. We should be available during dinner with our families. Available while we're driving our cars. In fact, so available while we're driving that there now are laws against us holding our cell phones in our own hands and being so distracted that we kill ourselves or other people. No worries. Just connect your phone to Bluetooth. And we can be distracted hands-free. And we should be available, right, when we're in our beds trying to get to sleep. We are literally always on call. And this idea that you should always be available kind of totally exploded with text messaging. I'll text people, but I'm, I'm not one who eschews just calling people. I find that sometimes ringing people up can get the job done far faster and even more efficiently than texting and then waiting for a bunch of texts back and forth to try to discuss things. Maybe because I can talk fast, I can be more productive. To do it with my actual voice. And then I don't have to worry about autocorrect, which also requires tons of more texting to clarify everything you say, think you said. Nevertheless, there's this idea that everyone you know should be constantly available. I texted you an hour ago, and you never got back to me. Like, all you have to do every day is sit and wait and respond to texts. Most of us don't think twice about sending a text to someone at any time of the day or night. We don't tend to pause in the evening and say to ourselves, <clears throat> you know what? I probably shouldn't bug this person right now. They're at home. They're probably resting. They're with their family. This can wait till tomorrow. We don't think that. It could be midnight. And we're like, this is so worth it. Yeah, because you need to know if you're whomever you're texting has seen the last episode of Shark Tank or America's Got Talent or even worse, The Bachelor or even worse than that, The Bachelorette. And you need to know if they've seen it right now. It's weird, right? I mean, we would never get in the car and drive to that person's house in a million years at midnight and knock on that person's door and risk waking them up to ask them that question. But again, totally socially acceptable to text that at midnight. And we sort of really kind of expect a quick reply. Because, you know, what else have they got, what else have they got to do? It's making us feel busy every 10 minutes. There's a little message you and I need to respond to. On top of that, the age of distraction is making us feel more tired than we need to feel. Because after a distracting day at work, we're ready to unwind. And typically we unwind by, how, again, using the screen that has distracted us all day long. And screens make for terrible unwinders. Like even in terms of just your brain chemistry, scientists and doctors are practically begging us to spend less time on screens. And it's because the constant input from our phones and devices and video games and Netflix 
and Amazon Prime, our brains cannot keep up with it all. It creates a dopamine rush that it literally cannot handle. And what happens is you and I get addicted to it. And they're begging us to stop using our screen so much. So we're looking to unwind by spending a few hours on our phones or Netflix or whatever, but in reality, the amount of visual stimulation is literally exhausting our brains. In fact, the American Public Health Association is calling our use of screens a growing public health concern. It's becoming like the new cigarettes, which, you know, used to be just a social thing until the doctors chirped in to say that it actually can kill you, very bad for you. Same with screens now. And they've got the results to back it up. You can check it out online. They found this. The average American spends 5.4 hours on their phone every day. That does not include other screens, like your TV or your computer or your iPad, just your phones. They find that boils down to what? Checking your phone every 11 minutes of your waking life. That's 86 times a day, every day. And that's just the average. The study also focused on what it called the heavy phone users. Here's what they found out. 13% of millennials spend over 12 hours every day on their phone. In short, that is a clinical level of addiction. Even if you just go with the average, that's roughly one-third of your waking life spent staring at your phone. You could pick anything else you want, and we would call it an addiction. So let's, let's just pick milkshakes. If you had a gal at work who every 11 minutes said, I can really go for a milkshake right now, and she did, you'd say she's an addict. Our phones have become like adult pacifiers. You seen this in your life? <clears throat> you got a little infant who starts crying. You pop a pacifier in its mouth to help them chill out a little bit. Same with our phones. Be honest. When you are quiet or alone, or you're in bed trying to unwind, if you're doing that and you sort of feel bored or sad or anxious or overwhelmed, we tend to just pull out our phones without even thinking about it, trying to distract ourselves because we really don't want to feel our feelings. We really don't want to think about our own thoughts. Our own thoughts can be a little dark, so we want to distract ourselves. Phones are like adult pacifiers. My phone is always promising me that I can escape. My wife does it because her phone is usually on 5% energy. But everybody else charges their phone regularly. It's always going to promise you that you can escape. You can escape your real life by diving into the infinite internet. Escape into a good TV show, a good social media, news cycle, video game. Just escape. That's the promise our culture is giving us. Our, our culture promises this, that real rest is found in escape. And the truth is, all the science, a lot of scientists are saying it's not working. In reality, it's turning us into junkies literal addicts, and it's making us feel more busy and more tired than we need to feel. So what do we do about this? How do we find real rest? I mean, like physically, spiritually, emotionally, while living in this age of distraction? Well, one of the ancient practices of God's people is something called a Sabbath, a day of rest. 
is <coughs> from the Hebrew word Shabbat, which means to rest. And Sabbath is a weekly day of rest. No work, no distractions. Just take a load off. Enjoy God. Enjoy His creation. Enjoy people that you love the most. And we see the first Sabbath mentioned in Genesis chapter 2, second chapter of the entire Bible. Uh, this is when humanity is basically living in a state of perfection. No brokenness, no sin, no imperfect relationships. And still, in that state, God says, take a single day every week where you can just chill out. Enjoy me, enjoy each other, enjoy creation. After Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 is, is, a, is a bummer. Sin comes in. Humanity moves from a perfect state to the imperfect state, sinful, broken world that you and I currently inhabit. And when that happens, God makes it an actual commandment. He commands that you and I take a Sabbath day every week. We see this in Exodus. God is preparing his people to enter into the promised land, and in that preparation, he gives them ten commandments to live by, ten kind of overarching rules and boundaries for how God's people can live the good life with God and each other. Most of us are familiar with most of these commandments, but my question today is this. Which of the Ten Commandments gets the most elaboration and explanation? Is it don't murder? Uh, don't steal? No, interestingly, the commandment for the Sabbath gets the most textual real estate. It gets the most words of any of the commandments. So let's just read it, let's just read it together. It's the fourth commandment. Exodus 20. God says this, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Holy just means set apart. Six days you shall labor and you do all your work. So you're setting apart yourself from work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. But people are staying with you. Now why do we have this commandment? Good news for us, God kind of explains it in the next verse. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. We're told to work hard, six days a week. Then we're told to rest hard on the seventh day. We're told that no one under your responsibility, not you, not your wife, family, kids, not your relatives staying with you, not your employees, not even your animals are supposed to do any work on the seventh day. We're told to do that because God, even in a state of perfection, decided it was a good and perfect thing to rest one day a week. Now, now did God exhaust himself in making the universe? I don't think so. He could have done it in one day. He could have done it in six minutes. I think he took six days because he knew that mankind would need a day off every week to live life to the full. And we get so much explanation around the Sabbath rest. Just for comparison, the commandment not to murder is four words. Uh, thou shalt not murder. That's it. God says, don't kill each other. Hey, it's been a good talk. Go do it. <laughs> Why all the explanation around Sabbath? I can't but wonder if we get so much explanation around it because God knew it would be the one commandment that you and I would end up breaking constantly. It's like murder. Stealing, adultery, okay, we should probably pay attention to those, right? But uh, intentional rest, where you take a day off, Who, who's got time to live this way? There's stuff to do, there's money to make, 
There's uh, places to go. There's stuff to buy. There's shows to watch. There's emails to send and read. Who's got time for a day of rest? And the result is that the Sabbath is one of the commandments that you and I break all the time, and we don't even blink an eye. So let's fast forward from Exodus to Jesus. Between the time that God made uh, the commandments and the time Jesus is walking on the earth, sometime in the middle of that time, the Jewish people had taken the Sabbath and gotten pretty legalistic about it. They had created this extensive list of rules and regulations, all man-made, of course, for what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. So by the time Jesus shows up, Sabbath was less about kind of a holy, perfect day of just chilling out. It turned into more of a life-sucking, legalistic set of rules to follow that ended up adding stress, not eliminating it or reducing it. As a result, Jesus was constantly making the Pharisees, the creators of these man-made rules, angry. Because he's constantly breaking their Sabbath rules, right? To be clear, he's not breaking God's rules. You know why? He's God. He's perfectly cool with the rules that he made. He's just not so cool with the rules that man added to them to make life miserable, right? He's, but he's, 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 not, he's not at working and making a paycheck or running errands or doing projects around the house. Here's what Jesus is doing on the Sabbath. He's healing people. I kind of looked them all up. Religious leaders declare that healing people is, is work, completely bypassing the fact that they're all miracles. Everything that I, Jesus did as a, on the Sabbath was a healing ministry. It wasn't feeding people. It wasn't building a fence. It was healing people. And they're basically saying, how can you claim to be the Son of God if you're constantly breaking the rules for Sabbath? Well, you're not, we're not breaking God's rules, you're breaking yours. But what's cool, I think, is what Jesus is really trying to teach us. I think he's trying to teach us something about Sabbath and its utility for us. If you look at all four biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, we see seven miracles he performed on the Sabbath. And all seven are healings. He's not walking on water. He's not multiplying bread. He's not, you know, feeding millions of people, thousands of people. He's healing. He's healed a crippled man, a possessed man, Peter's mother-in-law, a man with a deformed hand, a blind man, a crippled woman, and a man with a chronic disease. 100% of the Sabbath miracles that we see recorded in Scripture are healings. And here's what I think Jesus might be trying to tell us. He's showing us through his actions that Sabbath a weekly day of rest. It's not about rule following, not about earning God's favor by jumping through hoops. Instead, maybe, it's about our healing. Maybe healing is the point of it. Jesus did not have to work to heal somebody. He spoke or touched somebody. No work involved. The thing about Sabbath that makes it good and perfect and holy is that somehow God wants to use that one day a week to heal us up, heal us from the constant distractions, constant demands on our time and abilities, constant sense of hurry and busyness and all the exhaustion that comes with it. It's about healing up from those things. In fact, one time the Pharisees were so ticked off at Jesus because he healed someone on the Sabbath, and Jesus, Jesus finally turns to them and basically chews them out. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, for our benefit, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus is saying, God didn't create man just to see if he could handle the commandment 
about the Sabbath. He created the Sabbath for the sake of mankind, for mankind's good. It is a gift he gave us that we could have one day a week that's all just about healing up. So the question now is, is how? How might one day a week of kind of, if you will, total rest, how might that heal us up? And that's honestly, I think, difficult to answer. Why is it difficult? Because I don't really take a Sabbath every day, or a Sabbath day every week. I do try to reserve time during the week, evenings, chunks of Saturdays, just to be with Jackie, family. That keeps me sane generally. I know how I can get when I get really exhausted. You get really snippy and snarky, so I've learned to try to avoid that by setting time aside during the week, chunks of it. That said, a full, solid day every week just to rest with the Lord, the people I love. I don't, I don't really take a Sabbath day to do absolutely nothing. My guess is that unless you are, well, fully retired and maybe even then immobilized, most of us don't either. But I don't want us to miss uh, what I don't want is I don't want this to end up being a downer for us and all of us leaving here feeling guilty somehow. So here's what I'm going to do. I want to share just a testimony of a millennial pastor with a full-time job, a wife and young kids, who kind of dove into this as an experiment. And he wrote this testimony, which I found not only interesting, but it's making me think. And I wonder whether it might help us all to think. So here's what he wrote. I'm just going to read it to you. He says this. A few months ago, I had a wake-up call. I did a burial ceremony for some of my good friends who had lost their daughter at a really young age. And there was something about that experience that put me in this place of feeling overwhelmed by the idea that nothing is guaranteed to me. Nothing. Meaning every day that I wake up in good health with my wonderful wife and my three kids and a job I love, it's like every day is this little miracle, this gift I've been given. But it's a gift that is not guaranteed to be mine forever, much less tomorrow. Because who knows what tomorrow holds. That was my state of mind, he says. So I felt like I just needed to be more present, more present with my family, my wife, and my friends. I don't, I, I don't want to take those relationships for granted. It was like Jesus was kind of drilling into my brain this idea, constantly telling me, take a Sabbath, just do it. Just take it seriously. Lead your family spiritually by jumping into the Sabbath thing. So a few months ago, I sit down with my wife and tell her I'd like to be intentional about trying to create a Sabbath for us every single week. And we haven't done this perfectly. We're still getting used to it. We're still figuring out what works, what doesn't. But we have taken a Sabbath every single week for the last few months. And overall, it has been healing me. And it's been healing my family. And I cannot honestly even articulate how it's been healing me. It's, it's like a magic trick or something. So I'll tell you our construct for Sabbath. It won't work for everyone because everyone's got different lives and families and schedules. But if you're interested, you could take this structure and adjust it for your life. 
On a typical week, I have two, two days a week off, Friday and Saturday. So Saturday is our family's Sabbath. And on Friday, the day before, we do something that God's people have been doing for thousands of years. Friday is our day of preparation. In Jewish culture, this day before Sabbath, it was the day of preparation. The plan for that day before Sabbath was to prepare for tomorrow's day of rest. So that's how we treat our Friday now. It's another day to keep working, and we work hard. We clean the house, we do the laundry, we do the dishes, I mow the grass, I get some work done on the projects I got going in the garage, we do errands, we get all of our stuff done, work our butts off. Why? Because we're preparing for Sabbath. Then Saturday hits our Sabbath, and we do nothing that would be considered work. And already in our house, it's become like a weekly holiday. I mean, we can't wait. Even this last Tuesday, my son asked me, hey, Dad, is tomorrow Sabbath? I go, oh, no, buddy, it's four days away. He just groaned. It was awesome. My family's created three rules for Sabbath. Whatever we do, we do it together. It must be restful and bring us joy, and we put our phones down. Three rules to ensure we are actually enjoying God and each other. On Sabbath, we do stuff we love. We go hiking, we go to the park, ride our bikes. I find myself saying yes to the kids a whole lot more because I'm not glued to my phone and the constant promise of escape. Kids go, hey, can we play Battleship? Even though they really don't know how to play it. I keep telling them where my ships are, and I still beat them. <laughs> we do things we love. We sleep in, we take naps, we read, we chill in a hammock, we talk to each other. Kids play in the sprinkler. We also do not do the things we hate or anything that would be considered work. So on Saturday, the dishes pile up in the sink, and we don't feel guilty about it. On Saturday, we don't touch the laundry. There's no yard work. We don't run errands. In my house, we really don't enjoy cooking. So on Friday, I grab something frozen. We can just pop into the oven and not think about it. It's been healing. <coughs> but to be honest, it's come from some bitter pills. For example, the very first Sabbath, my son said to me, Dad, why are you spending so much time with us? That's pretty brutal. It was proof about how often I was distracted and escaping the madness of having three little kids. So at the same time, healing hurts at first, but that's okay. I would rather have my kids ask me those questions when they're six and not when they're 18 and about to leave my house. So why has Sabbath been healing for my family? It's really hard to say. Maybe the best way is to tell you this story. This is maybe our third or fourth Sabbath. On this one, what I wanted to do was get up before the family and go on a walk by myself before everybody else got up. So I get up, put my headphones on, listen to the music, I head out. I'm honestly kind of stressed out about some stuff going on at work, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. I was just kind of agitated. So I'm out walking. Eventually the sun comes up, and birds are all around. And I kind of got irritated that I couldn't hear them because the music was so loud. Dummy, I say to myself. I take my headphones off, and it's quiet. A gentle breeze is blowing. The birds are chirping. No distractions. I'm heading back to my neighborhood, looking at all the houses, mostly filled with people who are still sleeping. And out of nowhere, I get hit with this overwhelming sense of compassion for all the people in those houses in my neighborhood. 
I imagine that there was somebody in a house who just got married. But somebody in another house who was signing divorce papers. One person in this house probably can't wait for the day to begin, but there's another person over there probably who doesn't know how they're going to get out of bed today. One family is grieving a death, I think. Another is rejoicing over being pregnant. One just got a promotion. Another just got laid off. And, and it wasn't an audible voice or anything. But it was like God was saying to me, you are feeling now how I feel about all those people. In fact, how I feel about everyone in the world. I love them all with all my heart. And my heart goes out to them. I want so much for them. And if you would take your headphones off, I would teach you so much more about my heart. It was one of the most intense experiences I've had in a long time. And a lyric from a song in Psalms popped into my head, Be still and know that I am God. Maybe that's the best way to sum up what Sabbath has been for my life. First, it's a chance for me once a week to be still. No work, no errands. I put my phone down, no distractions. A chance to slow down and be present with God and my family. On top of that, the more I am still, the more I am able to realize at the heart level that God is God and that I am am not. And I discovered that it's actually better that way. There are six other days of the week where I can sit around and worry about my life and try to convince myself that I am in some sort of way in control over it. And there are six other days of the week I can wonder how my kids will turn out and what my future is going to be and try to manipulate those parts of my life to get a desired outcome. Six other days to get lost in the sea of distractions created by the internet. <clears throat> but Sabbath is my one day a week to just be still and know that God is God and I'm not. And all I know is that this day of rest, this weekly intentional day of being still, is healing me. It's healing my relationship with my wife and kids. It's healing my relationship with God. So no, I, I can't quite articulate how it's working. It's like a miracle. I can't explain it. I just know that it's happening. I'm being healed. And I'm basically here right now to beg and plead with you, please don't knock it until you've tried it. I'm just telling you, for me, it's been good stuff. So I don't know about you, but that testimony kind of shook me up a bit. It kind of convicted me a bit. But it also kind of encouraged me a bit. Like, you know, could life really end up not being so exhausting? Is there a better way than what our culture is selling us? Constant distraction? Isn't that something that sounds just a little bit attractive? See, our culture makes the promise where rest is found in escape. Escape to your phone, your TV, your devices, your social media, your career, your hobbies. But Jesus is what we really need is the rest that can be found in a day put aside for the most ancient practice of God's people. And the promise of God is that real rest can be found in being present with God and those you love. No distractions, no work, just being present 
So who are we going to trust? Our culture or our God? So if you're feeling weary and burdened, busy and tired, and if you're looking for rest, real rest and real healing, you can do what the cat did, lay on the floor of a restaurant. I don't think it's going to work for you. But here's the challenge. If that's the way you're feeling, how about try to schedule a weekly Sabbath? And another there's going to be objections, right? Dude, there's no way we can do this. My wife and I have completely different schedules. I only get one day off a week, or I work retail, so the schedules are always changing week to week. Or I'm in school, so even when I'm home, I need to be studying. If that's you, I would encourage you, at the very best, to sit down with your schedule and just see if it's within the realm of possibilities to pull something like this off. My guess is that most of us can pull something like this off. We might have to get creative. Again, it's not the the illegal legalistic rule. It's a gift that God's given us. So get creative. If you never get a full day off, make a couple of evenings your Sabbath. Right? Put the phones down. Turn off the devices. Turn off the TV. Eliminate distractions. And just be present with God who knows you love. And for those of us who feel weary and burdened and busy and tired, the challenge is to try to schedule something. It's your chance to have a guilt-free day or evenings or whatever, whatever time you can set aside where the demands of life do not dictate your spiritual and emotional health. If you feel disconnected from God, Sabbath might be a chance for you to draw a line in the sand and say, I'm here, God. I'm here. I'm totally present. You have my full attention. Speak. I'm listening. If you feel disconnected from your friends and family, same deal. Awesome to be able to say, you've got my full attention. No distractions. Culture says rest is found in escape. Jesus says it can be found in being present. And then he gives us the gift of Sabbath. Are you willing? Are you going? To unwrap it. May he pray for us. Guys, we close out this series. We may have just hit the hardest bump in the road for us. To set aside time from our busy schedules, doing everything in the world, but hanging out with you in a serious way to make ourselves be open to hear. Could it be possible that the things that ail us can be healed by such a simple thing as devoting some time away from all the distractions? And wouldn't it be wonderful to find out if we would just try it? So since you did this for us as a gift, I pray we would take up the challenge and open the gift that's been given to us. Give it a whirl. See what happens. Maybe life down here would be a lot better, would be more endurable if, if we did. We ask you to convict us, convince us, cause us to move out under your inspiration and guidance and your love for us. Pray all this in Christ's name. As we take communion, remember, we have a God who loves us. So this Sabbath is not some harsh thing he's making us do. It is a gift he has given to us. And we so easily throw it away without even opening it. As we take communion, maybe we recommit ourselves to being obedient in a way that's supposed to help us. But rather than moving in a path 
that hurts us. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.